Welcome back in, listeners, to another incredible episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are joined by another incredible artist. Today joining us, we have the book writer and director of the upcoming new show, A Little Place Called Earth, which is having a stage reading this upcoming September. We have Marcello Rolando joining us. Marcello, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. The honor is all ours. We are so happy to have you here with us today, talking to us about this great new show you have, A Little Place Called Earth. It's a great new musical. It's going to be coming here to New York for a stage reading in September. And why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about this show? I'll give you the log line. How's that, if I can remember it? (laughs) A Little Place Called Earth is a musical dramedy about four diverse characters coming to grips with our past, present, and future, challenged by a fifth character to choose between self-destruction and love thy neighbor as thyself. Interesting. Well, <laughs> I want to know more, but I guess I'm going to have to wait till September to know more. <laughs> well, how did you come up with the idea for the show? Well, that's really the composer and lyricist's fault, as I always say. Larry Dresner and I have worked together a few times before, in New York especially, and we got together after, oh, I guess 15, 20 years, we, we ran into one another and, and had lunch with our wives and each other and so forth. It was a grand visit and it was wonderful. And then at the end of the visit, which is so typically Larry, by the way, I should say it's Lawrence Dresnaw, who is composer and lyricist of A Little Place Called Earth, and, and many, many incredibly beautiful songs. So at the end of the lunch, he says casually, I have a few songs I'd like to send you to see what you think we can do with them. Now, this is after 20 years. And so I said, sure, send them to me. And he mentioned he thought it would make a great cabaret. And I said, "Okay, I could throw in a few lines in between, you know, the songs and tie that together. So it's a nice, neat little cabaret. And he was fine. He was delighted. and, And I believe that was back in 2018 which was a very busy year for me. And I was back and forth between Florida and D.C., sometimes Philadelphia, New York, of course. Um, that's where I, the places I usually work. And there just wasn't much time to do anything except think, gee, what do I do? And, and, and the songs, I can't say enough about the songs. They're beautiful. And the lyrics are beautiful and meaningful. The kind of thing you were talking about earlier before we came on the air that you and your wife look for in shows and So finally, in 2019, I was in New York for quite a while, and I started to really look at things uh, seriously. And I started writing. And Larry explained to me, because although I've directed many operas and, and musicals, I never went in asking people, how did this all begin? I was hired to direct, and I went in and I directed it, you know. So I didn't know that this was Larry's first experience of having someone write something around his songs. Usually the composer and lyricist uh, is, you know, asked after the book is written, write songs to fit the script. So when he told me that I laughed, I said, well, this was easy for you, but, but I have to say between whatever, whatever talks to us when we're being the, our most creative and I, by most creative, I mean, 
when you feel like you're not really in control, you're just the fingertips on the t on the keyboard. When you're in that sort of groove, as some people call it, or, or the muse is being happy, whatever you call it. This happened while I was putting in dialogue and creating characters that did not exist in the songs because the songs were the songs. But, but the songs inspired me, Larry Dresner's songs and his lyrics. And I got serious around 2019. And as we all know, then I had to... Well, you don't know this, but I had to zip back to Virginia and do a series of videos early in 2020. We all know what happened in 2020. So on March, I believe it was like March 10th or 11th, we had just finished a shoot. And I said to the, the staff or the team there, the camera team, that, you know, this, this thing is serious, whatever it is. And we don't have any serious help coming from the White House. So I think we better all just go home today stay safe until we can figure out what this is and then we'll come back to this. Well, one of the good things that came out of uh, COVID was that I was home a lot and, and sitting at the, the same computer, I think, or one of the others anyway. And I looked at Larry's music and it flowed, Andrew. It just flowed. I wish I could say, man, what a genius I am. I just put my fingertips on the keyboard and it flowed. And it's not that I haven't done several rewrites, and I still think it's a little too long, and I'll shorten it before September or wait and see what the audience thinks in September. That's always the last judge, you know. But it is a beautiful story about people who arrive. Three of them have been through this experience before, but not always with the same relationships with each other. All of them come from some place that they know, but the others don't necessarily know. A fourth joins them this time for the first time. Very different character. And of course, he doesn't know what the heck is going on, and he makes that very clear. And he doesn't trust any of them. And why are they there? And the question isn't so much, or it is why are they there, of course, but that's the second question. The first question is, when do they come from? And then why are they there? So the three who've been through experiences like this before, different times, having different relationships with one another. For instance, Sandy, the ingenue says, tries to explain to George, the, the person we've never seen before and who's never seen, gone through this before. She says, you have to understand, sometimes Luke is my father, but sometimes he isn't. Sometimes he and Angel are married. Sometimes they're angry, you know. But we're all here, and it evolves slowly but surely that it's it's they are there as much to learn a lesson as they are to pass along one. What a journey to create this. That's amazing. So yes. now as the show is preparing for the stage reading coming up in September, what has it been like developing it and putting everything together like that? Well, there have been a lot of people who've come my way that have been extremely helpful. Jay Michaels, who you know, has been one. Karen Gunn, who is an independent theater producer in New York and, you know, has has indeed developed and, and produced a number of, of shows. And she read it and Jay had the same reaction. And these two impressed me. And I've sent it to a number of people, some people 
who are are not in theater but are interested in being involved in theater financially. I have a couple of friends like that. With these two, Karen Gunn and Jay Michaels, they both, without knowing, different times, they don't know each other, said to me the same phrase. Well, almost the same. Jay said, well, you've certainly piqued my interest. This is like nothing I've seen before. And Karen said, oh, my God, Marcello, no one is ready for where this is going. And I went, okay, then, because that's that's it. So from there, I was asked to... <laughs> I got a call from my old, my dear friend still, I should say former, not old, because she's a doll, Linda Londra, who was my, was the producer of NBC's Another World and directed me on Another World many times. She was one of the best directors they had there. She and Casey Childs, who is the artistic director at Primary Stages. Anyway, they both directed me and taught me a lot as, as that goes. But she got an email, Linda did, and, and an email said, we'd like us, do you know anyone who has a, a screenplay? And she emails me and she said, you should send this in. And I said, well, but a little place called Earth is not a screenplay. And she said, well, make it one. <laughs> You've been on television, you know, what, what, you know. Well, I do know as a director, I direct a lot of on-camera work. I do. The thing that was interrupted by COVID was, you know, a series of videos. So I do, I direct camera. But I think of it still in terms as 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 television and film should be thought of. It's pictures. And I've been told as a director of theater that I make wonderful pictures. I remember I was told that years ago and I wondered, what is he talking about? And he meant the blocking, the way the people boom, suddenly they hit a spot and that's where they need to be. And there's this picture. And I thought, well, I don't want to think about it like that. <laughs> but thank you for the compliment. But what I did, I don't claim to have written a screenplay. But I did write in all of the camera directions because as if I was directing A Little Place Called Earth on camera, I'd want to see this in the frame and why and so forth. Well, I sent it to these people and they didn't pick me because it was too long and they wanted something with a very small budget. But they said, this really needs to be seen. And the woman there, another one who along the way who said, and she even called me, she says, you know, Marcello, this isn't a screenplay, but wow, I'd love you to make it one and we'll help you do that. And she is Eve Annenberg, a good friend of mine in New York City. She's become that, who has her own, you know, film productions going on and developing scripts and so forth up near Boston. Tell me where it is now. Not not quite Boston, uh, Provincetown. And I met a lot of people there and then, you know, and they were, some were been on my podcast and just a wonderful bunch of people who really know, as you and your wife know what we do from the inside out. And uh, when you meet those kinds of people, you just, you can sit around the table with a cup of coffee and never say a word and learn more than you would, you know, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> Did I answer your question? Yes, yes, Absolutely. And I, I completely agree. I mean, that's some of my favorite moments when I can just like be a fly in the wall and just soak up all that knowledge. And you're just yes. Like, yes, all of this. Oh, you were where and you saw what? And I'm like, <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm wondering with this great story, with the way it's been, you know, come together and everything and that reading coming up, is there a message or a thought you're hoping that audiences are going to take away from a little place called Earth? That is the most difficult and at the same time easiest or simplest question to answer. 
and I'll try to do it without getting too emotional. A little place called Earth, I would like people to see themselves, first of all, which is why the cast needs to be visually diverse and philosophically very often at odds with one another. Angel is exotic. We don't, you know, she just, she's very down to earth, but she's very exotic looking and has a, a universal view of life on earth. That's why it's a little place called earth for her because she travels more than any of us. Luke is an all-American white guy who thinks, you know, life hasn't been fair to him. And, and what is he going to do now that he has a lot of gray hair and, and, and people aren't hiring him as much as they used to? And he turns to alcohol for his get him through the day. Sandy, as I mentioned, the ingenue, is the youngest. And I think you asked me, I don't know if it was before we were during the Zoom or not, but who do we want to appeal to? She's the youngest. Luke is the oldest. And George is the newest. George is African-American male and doesn't know what's going on about any of this and not sure who to believe or who to trust. But he arrives being pursued by something we don't see right away. And that's that fifth character that's there. Only Angel can see the fifth character and only Angel can communicate with it directly. Until George arrives, George can see this character, but he cannot hear it or speak to it. And of course, has no idea what it is, but it's terribly frightening. And that's how the show opens with George's arrival. So it's understandable he doesn't he doesn't trust everyone, but slowly but surely he begins to realize he's a part of something. Talking about what you want the audience to take away that we have already, we are living, and we're not listening. I always tell actors that the most powerful thing you can do as an actor, no matter what platform, no matter what genre, no matter what, is to learn how to listen to what the other character is saying and listen with more than your ears. And A Little Place Called Earth is about, is a wake-up call. We need to start listening. We all carry around our own private demons on our back or in our head or stomach or gut or whatever seems to be eating at us. And a little place called Earth make, gives us the courage to listen to it. And I know one of the next questions, forgive me for preempting if I am, because people ask this all the time, and I think you did, what what's the audience are you looking for? And I would say anyone anyone and i only say high school seniors only because there is a little bit of language but not much but there is some but certainly as a senior well actually these days high school students i'm sure i've heard these words but anyone from senior in high school to a senior such as i am because we are the people who are going to live with what the people before us just as the people before them left for them to solve. A lot of it's beautiful. The arts, most beautiful of all. But some of it, some of it is destructive and dangerous, especially if you buy into it or if you ignore it. And what I would like the audience of A Little Place Called Earth to take away is, oh my God, it's time to pay attention. As Linda says in the 
death of a salesman. Attention must be paid. Yes. I love all of that. Now, you did preempt my final question a little bit, but I'm going all to... Right. No, 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 it's great. I'm just, I'm going to prod a little bit more into it. And it is the, you know, who do you hope have access to the show? You mentioned from seniors in high school all the way up through seniors themselves. Is there a specific person or group that you hope sees this show? I guess I was trying to answer that without really thinking about it when mentioning what our characters look like. Luke is white toast American, we used to say back in the days when I was directing commercials a lot. And he is a senior citizen. He's of German descent. Angel is this exotic no uh, uh, person of wisdom who knows all but does not push any. You must find your own path. And when you do, she can help you, but you must find your own path. And George, who is as any African-American male or female listening to this Zoom or in America or in the world can attest, he is, he is trying to exist in a world that denies that he has any equality or, any, or is due any justice. And yet he is a man of peace, and he, but he is challenged. And when, when uh, Angel asks him questions because she is as curious about him as he is about all of them, about his life, we make the point of how different that life is, the famous, the talk that black fathers have to do for their sons. This really, you know, it's a, it's a cliche thing, but the more I talk, the more I think I have to say it. This show is snatched out of the headlines in the United States of America. And most of our recent history, but history builds on itself. So nothing is just, okay, history is not is not just Thomas Jefferson, but it's all the things that have happened since then and all the things that have happened since Trump and all the things that have happened since we've decided that it's easier to solve our problems now because we can just reach very short distance and pick up a gun. It's all those things. And that's why the the cast must be visually what the audience, for every person who comes to see it, can relate to someone in that cast because that person looks like me. That person has my problems. And maybe the one who looks like you is not the one with your problems. Wouldn't that be a great lesson? So that that's where we, we are with that. And I hope I finally answered it with like, like Larry Dresner, who can answer a question and tell you absolutely nothing. <laughs> change gears now for the second half of our interview and let our listeners get to know you a little bit better oh god (laughs) and i want to start by asking you what or who inspires you what shows or playwrights or composers have inspired you or are even some of your favorites wow now i know what it feels like to be asked that i ask that a lot too (laughs) okay well again it's one of those things it's it's easy in the sense that I know myself and things that I love and things I feel and people who've inspired me. But finding a, a favorite one, I guess I, I always go back to 1776 
because I directed 1776 in 1976 in Philadelphia. And it was my first show to direct. And so there we were. And this, I could go on and on about that. Uh, it was it was remarkable. It's not when you, if you go back and do your research, those who are watching us and, and find the equity show that was not well received, that wasn't my show. My show, my show came in on New Year's Eve of 1975. And I worked it and timed it so that when it came to the point where the signing of the declaration happened and the bells are ringing and whatever, the bells in Philadelphia started ringing at the same time. And I knew about that. So I wanted to make that happen. And it did. The cast is astounding. And they many of them still keep in touch. We, we It was quite a show. And there was a big flu if people wanted fact check me, a big flu in 1976 in Philadelphia, a flu epidemic. And so I had to, after the show opened, I left because I was in Maryland with an, another 1776. And I would get calls periodically because it ran for months. And all that time, the equity show wanted to come in. Don't get me wrong. I love equity and equity actors. And the equity actors will be in, in a little place called Earth. But at the time, I was just beginning and the theater where we were wanted non, non-union non talent, or the producer, I should say. So in any case, there was a flu and I had to step in. I had I played Hancock, Franklin, I think maybe Dickinson, and someone else. Oh, God, Rutledge. Molasses to rum to slaves, you know. So it was that that certainly started me. But I love, I started out in opera, Peabody Conservatory of Music. I sang with James Morris, who's now retired from the Met. I mean, he was Peabody when I was. We were doing works. One day, uh, Andre Watts walks through. I knew who Andre Watts was, but I'd never seen him or met him. And I'm sitting in what was then a very tiny little canteen at the top floor. Now it's a beautiful place, Peabody. But it was a little canteen with vending machines. And I had a sandwich to eat between classes like any other student. And this gentleman walked over. African-American gentleman, and said, do you mind if I uh, sit, join you? I just hate eating alone. And I said, no, no, sure. So I'm, you know, we're talking and, and you know, hi, I'm Andre. Hi, I'm Marcello. And that was that. And everything was fine. And my girlfriend at the time walked by and stopped beyond him, whipped her head around and was looking at me and wondering, you know, because she knew exactly who I was talking to. I didn't. I got to tell you another story like that. And then around the corner came one of the most famous teachers there. And she looked, uh, you know, and so anyway, still, so she, yes, Andre, can we come back? Because he was having a break between his piano lesson. And he only stopped in the Peabody when he had time from touring, because he was even then, to have a lesson with her. And he thanked me for the company and he went on out. And then my girlfriend came back and said, do you know who that was? I said, yeah, it was Andre. (laughs) She, (laughs) She thought I knew you know who he was and i i said oh i oh i know oh i didn't realize that was him but he was great another quickie if i we we have time another like that sometimes ignorance is more than bliss it's helpful but i somehow ended up in lanford wilson's office and the man who still is involved it was circle in the circle circle rep downtown way downtown manhattan and the man who who is still involved with the new circle circle in the theater they call themselves now 
and wonderful people there, guys. If you've got plays you're trying to develop, you need to get involved with them. I get a lot of plays from playwrights a, a lot, and and you know, and I try to help them, but uh, there isn't as much time as there used to be. But in any case, I'm sitting there and can't remember his the friend who ran the place. Then his name has gone out of my head, but he said, "This is my friend Lamford. This is Marcello." They called me in. And they talked about various things, and I'm wondering why I'm there. And Lamford finally said, we want you to direct something, Marcello. And he had five scripts and offered them me to, you know, if I wanted to do that. And he smoked constantly, and the smoke kept going up, and it was a tiny little office. The smoke kept going up, and it went, I followed at one point, and there was a poster of a Lamford Wilson play. And I went, Yes, the face you just made. <laughs> I went, oh, my God. But the conversation didn't change. He was the same person, and I was too, except I had a few more wits about me, I guess. And they offered me five scripts to choose from. I chose what was then Nixon and Kissinger, which was another great moment in my career. It became Nixon's Nixon, and I got to direct it there for them, a showcase of it. And the playwright flew out from Utah, someplace like that, and didn't say anything until the show was over and everyone was raving and there were Broadway people there and so forth. And then he came over to me afterwards as people were leaving and he said, Marcello, I'm I'm Russell Lees. That's the playwright. And and I said, and I yelled at everybody, come back, come back, the playwright, because it was an amazing play. Still is, still is. And I've directed it a few times since then. Okay. Did I answer anything? <laughs> oh, about me. So I started an opera and then I went in and then I became a director of opera. And then I went on when I, when I, when I came to New York, which is another great story. I literally was told in DC area, mid-Atlantic, Marcello, you've done all you can do here. Washington Post is nice. Baltimore Sun is nice. Where else can you go but New York? So I went. I bought, here's something for everyone listening, a one-way ticket, train ticket to New York. I packed one suitcase and I did not have a job and I did not have a place to stay. I don't necessarily recommend that, but I went to New York and got to Penn Station and I had kept for years a little piece of paper in my wallet that had the name and telephone number of an actor who I'd worked with on tour years ago. I had to step in an emergency. I'd done the show in New York and then they took it on tour and I didn't want to go on tour, but the guy who played my part got sick. And so I went out, finished the tour for them. And he said, boy, you were really great. If you ever need anything or you're in New York, well, here I was at least 10 years later. And I called this number from a payphone in Penn Station and I told him what I had to have. And the shortest version I can make of it is he was happy to hear from me because he wanted to take his girlfriend someplace, but she didn't want to go because her girlfriend had to go some, wanted to go with her, her boyfriend who was, oh, that's the punchline. I'll save that. But in any case, so they said, so he calls me back. He says, watch that suitcase. Don't leave the payphone. And I didn't. And I watched the suitcase and he called back in about 20 minutes and said, look, if you can take care of this apartment for us and, you know, feed the cats, work with the plants, then his girlfriend and he can go on their thing and her girlfriend can go with her boyfriend on his sabbatical as a professor at Columbia University. So for my first year in New York, I lived in a five bedroom, four bathroom loaded with beautiful plants on Columbus University apartment, professor's apartment. Yes, I love that. 
That is a true welcome to New York story, right? Yes. There. That's amazing. And I and I think the real lesson of that is there are a lot of things that are rewarded by the the goodness in the universe. And one of them is having the courage to follow your dreams. One way ticket, no place to live. And and got a job, by the way, the next day uh, at a temp. And that's a whole nother. I won't even go into that one. That's <laughs> that's a long one. But it was just as glorious. And and the owner uh, said to me, you know, I know you are what you want to do is not to be here and be my bookkeeper. So as long as you don't work on Shabbos, Friday or Saturday, you here's the key. You come in whenever you're not working and you do the books. That was Mr. Weinstein. A lot of angels on the way. A lot of angels. Yeah. Oh. And they still come. Well, that is a wonderful lead into my next question, which is, you know, what is your There's favorite <laughs> about <laughs> what is your favorite part about working in the theater? Oh, good heavens. I think to be I'll be selfish, first of all. The number one thing I love about working in the theater as a director is that when the and I've worked a lot with original plays. When playwrights bring me a play, I tell them, you have five pages. Just as I gave Lanford Wilson, he gave me five scripts. First five pages, the Nixon and Kissinger. I didn't want anything to do with Nixon. I moved it. But I read the first five pages of the others. They weren't good. Went back to Nixon. Couldn't put it down. So what I love is that when that happens, I see the movie in my head. And that movie, I know I can do and I want to do. And I tell actors all the time, I want you to understand, I wish for you what I have. Today on the first day of rehearsal, I see where we're going. But you have to work through that on your own. And then, of course, the second reason I love working in theater so much is that all of that, all of that is molded and twisted and turned with each rehearsal because of what the actors give to me. So we don't end up with the movie that was in my head the first day. We end up with something far more beautiful and far more inclusive. And they know how we got there was just as much what they gave me as what I gave them. That's what I love about theater. I love that answer. That's a wonderful answer. And now we've arrived at my favorite question to ask guests, <laughs> which is, what is your favorite theater memory? Oh, well, I'm, I guess we've done that one, 1776, but there are others. And I'll tell you one that might really surprise you. When my parents got ill, which is the reason I had to start spending most of my time in New York, but also in, in, in Washington, D.C., and I had to do something because they both had Alzheimer's. And it's something to this day, you know, it just progresses. The only thing you can do is slow it down. And there are a number of ways of slowing it down. And I was learning by trial by fire how to do that. But as a director, I thought, oh, well, I'll go in. I'll set this play up, this production with these Alzheimer's characters. And I'll cast doctors and nurses and this and that. I'll be back to New York in a week. Well, 12 years later... I learned that you must listen with more than your ears. That became my my watchline always because people are saying and doing things on the outside all the time. 
And the extreme of that is, is Alzheimer's. But all of us do that, whether we have a mental illness or not, because we, we have those seven veils, that famous story and movie. But one of my happiest things was I, a friend, my best friend, incredible for 40 years, more, more than that. Lance, Vine, Lance Thomas Vining, conductor, was tenor, sounded just like Burley. And, and now is primarily the last 20 years has been a conductor. And he said, you know, there's, they're looking for this uh, director for this uh, middle school. And drama teacher is what they wanted, a drama teacher in a middle school. And I said, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to work with middle school people. And he says, oh, of course you do. I've, I've seen your work and so forth and on. Well, I went and the, fortunately for me, the, the principal was, she was the vice principal, but she was running things because the principal had had some issues. But she was a New York Italian. So I walked right into it and she called the woman who was the head of Fairfax County, Virginia, music and drama and arts and all that, who came and had this big book about. And she said, obviously, they both did their homework because she said to me, you have this this book and this is all the, the agenda, what we do in the syllabus and so forth and so on. And then she closed it. I hope she won't get into trouble with this, but this has been a while now. She closed the book and said, you don't have to do a thing in it, Marcello. We have read your resume. And you can do whatever you want. And so what I did was discovering, again, this was new to me, but there were six scenes in, in 1776. I hope I remember that correctly. And I had five, that's what it was, six, six, whatever it was. I had a scene for each class I had. And what I did was stage the first scene in the first period and the second scene in the second period and so forth and so on. And the cast that was on would freeze. And then the next cast would come in and take that position and the other would unfreeze. And then the play would continue. Parents came, teachers came, the whole school stopped to see it. The high school that this middle school fed students, teacher, and their people came because they could not believe what they were hearing. And talk about you can't be God giving, as my grandmama would always say. I had worked already at the Kennedy Center and directed shows. And I'd met there a fabulous stage manager who never I never saw hold a clipboard or a pen in his hands. He had two people who followed him around. They had the clipboards and the pens. And he would say to me, Mr. Rolando, what would you like? And I would tell him and he'd nod to whoever was in charge of that. And they wrote it down. Well, guess who came to the middle school to because he was now working for the county and he was doing all kinds of technical and electrical work for them. And he recognized me. I didn't recognize, but he said, Marcello, what are you doing here? You know, blah, 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 blah. And, and I said, well, I'm the drama teacher and they've got this lecture hall and that's all I've got. It's but it's a raked audience, at least if I could make something. He says, well, I'll make it a theater for you. And he wired the entire room for theater lights and, and sound and everything. And so I had a theater just like that. And then, oh, 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 and then he said, and I'll tell everybody you're here. And they were doing a big fundraiser. And I told the kids, all my classes, I said, listen, I can't tell you or, and I don't want you to tell your parents that I said what, how they should spend their money. But if they choose to make a donation, I would appreciate it if they put in the memo for the performing arts department, because by that time, the orchestra and the band people who did not get along were getting along because I became the performing arts director and and the chorus teacher and the and I started a video department 
and and the and and a morning news show and the kids did all the news they were all all of the kids ran the cameras they were they did the they did the stories i i just stood on the side after i told them what to do and they did it and the librarian told me she had had those cameras forever and nobody knew what to do with them because the school provides them to the library not to a a drama or video department well now we had one so we took them and and she she was very helpful as well and so my favorite second favorite memory is that middle school class for three years I was there did shows like nobody ever thought they could do and I told them I said this look your mom and dad are going to come your brothers and your sisters and they're all going to think you're cute whether you know whether no matter what you do but we aren't doing cute you are going to be fabulous. You're going to be something they never thought they'd see. And they were. And one kid, and of course the boys at that age were scared to even look at girls, let alone touch them. And in 1776, that was okay because there were not a lot of love scenes. But in shows that I did after that, you know, it was a challenge. And and finding a and half your Continental Congress being women, you know, it's a big deal now that they're doing an all-female show of 1776. But I did it way back when was because they were mostly mostly girls, you know, in the drama class. I got guys by saying, OK, just remember, there got to be scenes with boy girls, you know, and the, all the pretty girls are in the, in my shows and they would come. And so but I got tons of people got lights, people who could, could teach them how to run lights and, and sound. And they learned that, too. And we also had, which is one of the proudest. There were there were children there. It was a time when I don't know what they do now in public school, but but there was during when I was there those three years, the the belief was to incorporate, to involve, to immerse the children with disabilities of any kind into the classroom. And they wondered, well, can they? I said, sure, sure, come on. Well, we had a guy who people thought they just had too much trouble because he could be. It it wasn't that he was out of control. He just couldn't stop talking. Sounds like me. And he would have certain outbursts. Well, I gave him a script and said, you know, and I, and he could watch me off behind the camera. And I just do that if he was getting a little carried away or something, but then he would boom. He was right. He was the number one anchor for the news show. This kid, they had a whole conference about what can we do? He was the number one anchor in the morning news show. And he was fabulous. And so many stories like that. And the young lady who really seemed to be out of it and could just write all during my class my, and rehearsals and whatever, it was something, oh, it was 12 Angry Men, which of course was mostly women. But I had, this was the first year when I had a, a, a the largest classroom, but not the, not the place we turned into a theater. And there was a closet. And I told her, I said, well, you'll go off there and we'll come in, and the cue is because she's the person. If you know Twelve Angry Men, the the the, the jurors, the person who watches the jury comes in and wonders what all the noise is that's going on, and because they were arguing, and then everything's settled, and they go out. It's a one-liner. Well, the young lady who really always seemed a little out of it, and of course in my class you may not make fun of anyone any time so she she had this cocoon of protection around her and she did what she wanted to do which was writing and i never bothered her and one day was her cue was coming up and i was looking for her and she was nowhere nowhere and then the door opened she stepped out and she said her lines what's going on in here everything all right and they said yes sir and she went back without my telling her 
beyond that first rehearsal. And that's not all of it. The last of it is the first day of rehearsal, the first day of class, I told them, there are some things you need to remember. And, I'm, and I told them what they were. It's a list. But I said, but here's the one you must remember more than any other. Always come to rehearsal with a script and a pencil. Not a pen, a pencil. Well, the first week when it was time for that oral final, I asked them, okay, what are the things that I've told you this week that you must always have for rehearsal? They answered everything except that one I just told you. And one hand went up. The same autistic child who had come out and said her line. She raised her hand timidly and I called on her and everyone looked. They didn't know what to expect. And she said, a script and a pencil. Hard to top that one. Oh, oh my God. And not only that, she then showed me what she had been writing. It was a play, a play. And from that day on, and nothing I had to say about it, all of the girls became her best friend. All of them. She had respected. She couldn't make fun of them because of me. But once she answered that question and she, this is what she had been doing, they surrounded her and she was one of them and she just beamed. So much so, her mother came to the school when she was about to go to high school and asked me, what do I need to tell the, the people in high school? And the high school counselors, all they came to the middle school to find out what we were doing that was making this possible. And I said, you must understand, this is, this is, I guess this was while I was dealing with my parents and Alzheimer's, because that's why I came back. You must understand that no matter what you see on the outside, they are still on the inside. They see and they hear. They may, they may have to manipulate and, and, and traverse whatever is coming in differently than we, but they see and they hear. They are still on the inside. Ah. Thought I'd make it through, but maybe not. I mean, you got me all teary-eyed. That's incredible. Oh, that is one of the best stories, if not the best we've ever <laughs> had on the show. That is. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was amazing. What a lasting impact you have left on so many people. That's incredible. Well, as we wind things down, are there any other projects or productions that you have coming on the pipeline we might be able to plug? There's one, well, it's in my head. There are, there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are playwrights, the number one in Arizona, Jim in Arizona, hope you're listening. And Gary, oh, there are two Garys. I should mention Gary Morgenstein, one of my favorite playwrights. And, and I directed a black and white cookie that he wrote in New York last July, I think, oh, a year ago. Wild Time Flies. And it's a fabulous play, but all of his plays are. If you want to, anyone listening, Gary deserves to be produced often. But there's one in my head that every time I sit down to think about making a little place called Earth Shorter, it sounds like a bit of a sequel. 
And that's kind of an oversimplification because it's not really, it's not the same people or the same or the same show, but it's kind of what happens after everybody leaves the theater and we've all learned what we came to learn. We we thought we came to be entertained and we are, by the way, I go back to Larry again. The, the songs are so glorious. The love stories, two love stories, parallel love stories, absolutely wonderful, unexpected, and the ending, which of course I will not even give a hint to, I am most proud of because it nobody sees it coming. Jay didn't, Karen didn't, but they both thought, oh my God, people are going to just, you know, so yes, there's one in my head in particular, but the number of playwrights of, of straight plays who write to me all the time. There's a gentleman, I can't think of his name now, but he wrote a one. Oh, that's Jim. Jim out in Arizona. Yeah, the one about the college kids and what's going on. That's a great play. There's so many great plays and playwrights. We just don't know who they are. And I'm not looking for a ton of scripts thrown at me, but I do think all of us directors who like and producers, and investors, by the way, who want to develop new talent like you do, Andrew, we need to invite them to to send you at least a synopsis, or as I do, send me the first 10 pages, because that we are letting so much slip by that should be on its feet in front of an audience. So much. Just the ones I read, and imagine how many more there must be. No, that's you're absolutely right. And actually, that is a good lead into my final question, which is our (laughs) listeners want more information about a little place called Earth or about you. Maybe they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do that? Well, reaching out to me, I think their email addresses all over Facebook. Certainly the the website of a little place called Earth is www.alittleplacecalledearth.com. That's the website. The email is a little place called Earth Six, the number six at gmail.com. And if all else fails, if you go to the website, I'm not going to tell you because I always think we we have to do a little work on our own. But if you go to the website, you will be able to find out very easily how to reach and touch is right there, and it's a big font <laughs> to to me as uh, specifically. And I'd say to, I don't want him to get too busy too soon, but anybody who wants good music, Lawrence Dresner. But you can't have him until I'm finished with him. <laughs> <laughs> but he's an amazing composer and lyricist. He really is. Perfect. Well, Marcello, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And just for everything you shared, I could talk to you for hours. This has been amazing. So, Thank you so much. I'm so excited for your show and for everything else. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. You take care. Best to your wife. She sounds great. My guest today has been the book writer and director, Marcello Rolando, whose new show, A Little Place Called Earth, is having a stage reading this upcoming September. You can get more information about it by visiting a littleplacecalledearth.com or by sending them an email at a littleplacecalledearth6 at gmail.com. I'm sure you can find a wealth of information as well through the contact information on that website about Marcello. He is one of the most 
fascinating people we've had on the show. We hope you've enjoyed this interview, but make sure you stay tuned for this upcoming reading and for everything that's going to follow with this great production of A Little Place Called Earth. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap those candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. Hello.